0: Sonic Interventions. A podcast by Intervening Arts.
1: Welcome to our Sonic Interventions Podcast, produced at the Collaborative Research Center Intervening Arts. My name is Emma Lowe, and I'm a doctoral researcher and artist based in Berlin at the Freie Universität, where I work on the project B5 focusing on sonic interventions. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by artist and researcher Victoria Pham, and we are sitting together in her lovely home in Paris. Could you please introduce yourself,
0: Vicky, for our listeners who are not familiar with you and your work? Sure thing. I'm going to try and be as as succinct as I can, because I'm aware that my work sounds immediately bizarre. (laughs) So normally, when I introduce myself, I would say I'm an installation artist. Mm -hmm. Um, I work... At the intersection of science technology and art uh, within my art practice i'm a sound designer and i work with projection and sculpture in technology it's kind of an extension of that i work with sound technologies pre- mm-hmm. predominantly different types of speaker designs and different modes of listening through technology and software design and then in terms of science and research my background started years ago in archaeology but eventually and no pun intended it evolved into now me working as an evolutionary. And those three arms together kind of work and quilt themselves into this world of sound. So the center of my practice is through deep listening and listening to the environment and how we can express and research that in different ways.
1: And you're currently finishing up your degree in evolutionary biology, biological anthropology.
0: Yeah, it is essentially evolutionary (laughs) biology. Um, But because my background was in archaeology and it kind of roots out of that, bizarrely, the PhD or the section of the department that I'm in at the University of Cambridge is called Biological Anthropology. Mm -hmm. And most of the questions we ask are about evolution of primate behavior, hominid behavior and an extension of that. So yeah, it's evolution. Mm -hmm. And could you tell us a little bit about your project? Yes. So because I mentioned before that everything's about sound, this project is also about sound originally uh, it was about archaeoacoustics which is a super specific discipline in archaeology where we're looking at acoustic technology in order to assess different sites of habitation by past humans and also the behavior that's associated with that so that's a lot of like cognitive analysis Mm. and i happened to start my phd in 2020 and that arm of research required so much travel that suddenly that was not possible because of the pandemic so it took like a wild quick twist and a turn, which then led me into this more evolutionary biology approach. Mm. So I am looking at specifically the development of rhythm through time. So whether or not rhythmicity in human behavior, in animal behavior, and in plants has any kind of evolutionary advantage. <laughs> So it's led me to look at experience of tool making, whether or not having rhythm helps with that or a sense of rhythm. And it also looks at kind of cognitive behaviors, in particular communication. So I work with chimpanzees Mm -hmm. uh, in West Africa, and we look at whether or not their behavior, percussive behavior, has any advantages to their survival as a
1: species. Wow. That is fascinating. (laughs) And can you reveal if there's any indication of that being the case or? Yes, I can reveal.
0: (laughs) As a little sneak peek. You heard it here first. Yes. (laughs) So the chimpanzees have a behavior, which I actually didn't know that they had until I started the PhD research, which is called buttress drumming. So Mm -hmm. if you've seen kind of these big tropical trees and they have these huge roots, that produces kind of like flank and the membrane of that's relatively thin. Um, It's not as thin as a human drum because Mm -hmm. that's leather, but these are kind of natural occurring surfaces. And the chimpanzees in this particular site in NIMBA, which is called the Seringbara site, the researchers there have discovered that they actually select trees. And when they select the trees that appear to be most resonant, they use it to drum. And that's a form of long distance communication that these chimpanzees have. Okay, that is fascinating. I know, it's not just us. (laughs) See, all this behavior is not unique to humans. Wow, Uh, that's incredible. And that
1: also connects to the project that I first became acquainted with. And that's how I became acquainted with your work, which was the project called Resounding from several years ago, from 20. Oh yeah, we started in 2018. In 2018, where you collaborated with James Nguyen Mm -hmm. on a project centered around the Vietnamese Bronze Age Dong syndrome. And because I'm doing research on... New or alternative modes of archiving and interacting with archives, this project was especially fascinating to me because essentially what you all have done is it has taken great lengths to acquire this drum. (laughs) And you've made this drum essentially as accessible to the public as possible through digitalizing the sounds of the drum, making the sounds free to download and compose with and work with. And you've also done a concert series where people have performed with the drum. And I think that it's a wonderful experimental model for how we can think about archiving instruments in the future. And this also relates to, to rhythm as yes, well. Exactly. And a very early way that humans produced rhythm, you know, yes. with a tool external to their bodies. Yes, exactly. And I wonder if you could also introduce for our listeners a little bit this project, um, in your own words.
0: It's quite a big project. (laughs) You've outlined it fabulously, (laughs) by the way. So, yes, as we mentioned earlier, it started in 2018. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was the year I actually met my collaborator, James Nguyen, Mm -hmm. Um, all the way back in Sydney. And we were just talking about mythologies because we're both of Vietnamese heritage. Out of different things we encountered in our childhood and different things we had never, never encountered since uh, mm-hmm. adulthood. And one of those things was this very mythological Vietnamese drum called the Dong Son drum, mm-hmm. which is right now, uh, if you actually go search it up, it's quite a big image or icon for uh, Vietnamese nationality because it's a big symbol of ancient Vietnam and the kind of spectacular technological innovations that happened during that period. And my mom had told me stories about this drum and I'd never seen one. And then when I was an archaeology student as an undergraduate, I went and did volunteer work at the Australian Museum and voila, there was a drum just in the collection at the back. I went, whoa, the way. And James had a similar experience where he went to the Met and then suddenly encountered this drum in the glass vitrine, you know, the normal way that a museum will collect or present its work, silent. I was also studying music at the time. I thought that's really weird that we can't play An instrument, we can't hear its voice, and that is the ultimate function for that object. So we're kind of taking away the actual visceral experience of Mm -hmm. that object and its life. So we started having this conversation about care care for an object. Mm -hmm. How can we care for the object and the community and the wider collective imagination that comes from housing and collecting these objects in the first place? Mm -hmm. And we had all these conversations with archaeologists and conservers, and we tried to get access to the drums in Australia, and particularly the one in the New South Wales, Mm. but it just became really difficult because of conservation protocols or traditional conservation protocols. So in the end, we got really lucky. James spotted a drum going for (laughs) sale uh, at a public auction,
1: Mm. and then we just
0: bought it, and that became the drum that was the centre to the project, and because we bought it ourselves we have the rights to access it and then thus make it accessible to the wider public and the vietnamese diaspora so then became the project that you mentioned of like actually digitizing the sound so what we did was because there are no records Mm -hmm. of how this instrument is played there's one image that we had of this huge drum being played by metal rods only other records we have of these drums come from French archaeologists who uncovered and took the drums to France and to Europe and that's how they've been distributed at the wider museum market Mm. they have a very (laughs) it's very funny for me being trained as an archaeologist because we're slightly still trained this way they have a very like beautiful image of this object like it's like it has pictures of frogs on it like iconography rain, wheat there's always a sun in the centre of the face of the bronze drum Mm -hmm. and they're like oh wow this must be like a fertility thing or it must be to call for rain it's got something to do with agriculture it's like this very beautiful image of the orient that they had mm-hmm. of people working in fields and you know were calling to the spirits etc etc mm-hmm. but that one image we have of this drum being beaten with metal rods means that it was not just used for that but also to signal kind of in the way that the chimpanzee do mm. long distance signaling to warn for war so Excellent. it's a multi-purpose instrument. It has other functions beyond being this beautiful thing to call for rain.
1: Right. It's a large drum
0: that it is probably running. can
1: make quite a big sound.
0: Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so the one we ha- It's solid bronze as well. It's like a single cast object, which okay. is very bizarre for that period of time as well. <laughs> so the one we have... I want to say, like... 80 centimeters in diameter which is quite big mm. uh, it's not the biggest for example when we're in here in paris now as an example if you go to the anthropological museum the musée de Quai Branly, <laughs> they have one on display and it's like three meters in diameter it's huge i don't even know how they brought it here wow yeah
1: okay. <laughs> and you were a musician yourself and a composer and, yes. and how
0: did it feel for you to interact with this drum physically for the first time it was very surreal Particularly after we bought one and actually touching it with my ungloved hands <laughs> was, all firstly, like a weird, surreal experience. Great, great as a musician, but it, like, disrupted all my training as an archaeologist of, like, not being very careful in right. collections. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay, now we can play this thing. And we invited percussionists in, contemporary percussionists, to experiment with it. Uh, they're Selena Myatt and Adam Cooper-Stanbury from Sydney. And they're actually married, which is quite adorable. Oh, it's a married percussionist sweet. couple. And they experimented it. And from that session, we extracted 51 sounds or stems, right. which formed the basis of the project. We invited people and commissioned people to write music for the drum with the drum. Mm-hmm. And those stems are now, as you mentioned, like freely available, license-free for anyone who wants to continue making music with this ancient object.
1: That's wonderful. We'll link it in the podcast description for anyone who's interested in checking out these sounds and incorporating them into their own works. So yes, as you describe, a lot of your practice has to do with connections between nature and sound and practices of decolonization and listening deeply. Could you share with us what listening deeply means to you and how you
0: do that? (laughs) That is a great question. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many different uh, like threads to answer that question. But Maybe I'll start by going backwards. Yeah. I grew up Buddhist, mm-hmm. and from a very early age, I was sent to meditation class. <laughs> and by early, I mean three or four. Oh. so which you know when you're that age you really don't understand what's happening i took that as a free nap time <laughs> experience <laughs> so i would regularly be like awoken from the sessions with a monk being like okay it's time to go home now but because it was so early that i kind of started this unconscious practice of meditation it's carried through me with life mm. so i still meditate now yeah most days and that's kind of a good rooting position so deep listening for me came from a meditation practice. Mm-hmm because you have to be aware of your body. But for me, maybe because I'm more sonically aligned, Mm -hmm. I can hear everything better. Mm
1: -hmm. I can hear everything in
0: my body better, everything that's happening in my environment better. So in terms of my personal practice, it's coming from meditation. And that kind of expanded into the music that I make, the sound design, the installation, and the research. Mm-hmm. Because I often feel like, from maybe a more conceptual point, we're not listening correctly. Mm. Like before when I talked about archaeology, and this kind of links in with decolonization naturally, those presumptions that those archaeologists have that we still have when we look at collections from places that are not Western, we like impose a certain understanding of those objects on and then we educate other people so it becomes this like cycle it's almost like how academic referencing works we have to cycle back to the root and if the root was wrong then what are we listening to and when you train as an archaeologist we're always working in the field and often i feel like why don't we just ask the communities here they know the soil they know the land they know their country and their stories so instead of making these bizarre quantitative analysis through science, mm-hmm. why don't we simply have a conversation? Right. So the deep listening kind of extends into research that way. I think yeah. that we need to interrogate the manner in which we conduct research, the way mm-hmm. the theory of science is working, and kind of expand our understanding of the world. Because it's still a little bit limited and it's still a little bit Eurocentric.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I was speaking with my dad in preparation for our conversation today because he's a neurobiologist. And what we ended up talking about is kind of the preconception, I think, in Western science that in some ways our senses, maybe this is not true in the sciences, but maybe in the popular imagination, our senses are somehow somewhat objective or exact. Yes. And my dad was saying that actually there's mechanisms in the ear or connected to the brain where the ear can focus on things in particular. The ear decides, the brain decides what the ear should listen to mm-hmm. the most. And apparently yes. in bats, they kind of zero in on mosquitoes or their prey or whatever, mm-hmm. and they can kind of direct their listening to be primarily focused in one direction or one thing. And thinking about that and how socially informed what we would choose to pay attention to is, it means we have so much training and untraining to do mm-hmm. to correctly listen, as you say. I mean, this mm-hmm. is quite interesting to hear that even the mechanics of it at the source is kind of reliant on our brain making a very subjective and socially
0: informed decision about our listening yeah exactly so we've like we've evolved to filter out the world in a certain way yeah just so that we can survive but then we have as you mentioned like cultural entrainment on top of that yeah and then when it's combined with research and academia what does that potentially lead to are we filtering uh, like through cultural entrainment mm-hmm. our world in a very specific way that it is affecting how other people live are we imposing a certain viewpoint on other people mm-hmm. so i think it's a really fascinating thing to unpack yeah and consider yeah yeah
1: so you have recently founded uh, a biodesign and acoustic ecology studio here in Paris called Earthly Futures. This sounds quite exciting. Um, would you be willing to share with us your ideas and dreams for this space? So
0: I suppose it follows on from the conversation we just had about like society and culture and, and listening deeply. That's <laughs> probably the primary aim. I want to make space through this studio for people to listen and teach the different ways that we can do that. And because I primarily worked in a research world and an art world that has been digital, so making video art, sound design is kind of this intangible digital thing, trying to find a way to make it physical. So Mm -hmm. that's often through running workshops, through sonic meditation, deep listening practices. But as well, because I come from that kind of biology background, working with science and tech, thinking about how can we deconstruct materials that are better for our environment, that are in alignment with my idea of listening to others and to the earth and the soil. So I work with mycelium, which Mm -hmm. came out of the work that I did through my research. Mm -hmm. So thinking about the networks that mycelium creates, can we create a material that is biodegradable? Does it have acoustic properties that we can work with and expand on? So the studio right now, in terms of design, is working with these kind of fungal partnerships as a collaboration to make objects, Mm -hmm. um, sonic sculptures and things like that, that in turn provide a basis in which people can sit amongst these kind of bizarre, frozen, architectural, fungal objects and listen.
1: Mm. So bringing people and mushrooms together. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) Yes, commune sonically. Exactly. (laughs) People, every time I describe this, people are like, exactly what kind of mushrooms are these? I would like to say that they're not magic mushrooms because I don't know how to grow them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Great. So it will be a space that will open sometime soon or
0: is we're working on
1: that you're working on that Yes.
0: so at the moment it's lots of prototypes of working things and kind of small exhibitions to showcase the prototypes of the actual material itself Mm -hmm. and the objects and then sometimes workshops running alongside them but eventually I would like it to be a place that people can come and sit in and be so, in this environment.
1: It sounds dreamy. I would love to visit once it's all yes, done and open. Of course. So are these the specimens that you have here on your lovely balcony growing? <laughs>
0: actually, I will stand up, but I don't make so much noise. They're actually in that cupboard over there. So ah. m- making myco-composite, you can make objects with it. Mm. And I have in the fridge, um, which I should probably relocate to a specific fridge, lots of agar plates of mycelium samples and things ah. like that. Okay
1: very cool (laughs) mix of dinner
0: ingredients (laughs) yes actually they are edible Ah. not that kind of edible (laughs) oyster mushrooms (laughs) specifically
1: so finally because this podcast is called sonic interventions and it's the central impulse for the research project that i'm a part of i was wondering if the concept the term intervention or even sonic intervention has any resonance with your practices it's a really big question. It's a big one. It's a big question. I yeah. feel like
0: we sort of touched on it earlier when we talked about listening deeply, specifically through the academic or scientific lens. But beyond that, I hope this doesn't sound too like wishy-washy, but because I'm running workshops on Sonic meditation and because I am a meditator and deep listening and kind of introducing those practices into people's daily lives <laughs> all of the way or in some academic context when I've met other academics and kind of introduced them to that idea as well, I hope that the intervention is not something that is radical and fast, but something that is slow and something that you can live with and ultimately something that is sustainable. Yeah. So thinking about the way sound affects our daily life, like right now you and I are sitting in the middle of a quite large metropolitan city mm-hmm. and just being aware of how the, that affects the way that we breathe, the way that mm-hmm. we walk, and how you can manage that in your daily life. For example, I find myself walking faster than I need to. Mm. And then taking a moment to breathe. I'm like all the noise and all the voices and all the tourists and all the heat to kind of recenter myself. It sounds like a weird place to start, but I feel like without that conscious thinking and listening, I can't do the work that I need to do, mm-hmm. which in many cases does interrogate much more viscerally noticeable social things like decolonization. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Absolutely. Yes. And
1: breathing is kind of one of our essential rhythms in, <laughs> yes. in, in life as well. So kind of starting with, with that rhythm and listening to our own rhythms yes,
0: exactly.
1: as a starting point. Thank you so much, Vicky, for being with us today. Thank you to Dr. Laila Zami for initiating the podcast and to Stephanie Gregor and her team at Oifanica for producing the podcast. Thank you for listening with us, and we hope you'll stay tuned for the next season of Sonic Interventions.
0: Sonic Interventions. A podcast by Intervening Arts.